What's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for wrapping up your week with us. This is your Friday edition of Fantasy MLB Today. We are a sports ethos presentation, of course, and I'm your host, Joe Orico. You can find me over on Twitter at JoeOrico99 and also at EthosFantasyBB. That's where you'll find all of our new baseball and fantasy baseball updates this offseason and, of course, heading into 2024. Whether that is podcasts, articles, polls, news and notes, updates to the site, everything you guys need for your fantasy baseball experience is at EthosFantasyBB and, of course, at SportsEthos.com. If you are not somebody who uses social media, you'll find pretty much all that same great work over there. You won't see the tweets that our guys will send out during the offseason and during the year as well uh, to help you with your pickups and your trades and your everything that we got going on. Uh, a lot of our guys are very active on social media, so I do recommend you guys follow along on Twitter, but you can still uh, follow the plot if you are just using sportsethos.com as well. But today we're going to do the flip side of what we did yesterday. Yesterday was ADP values. I talked about some of my favorite players within the top 100 in early drafts that I think are being a little bit undervalued. Guys, you can probably push up at least a round or so, depending on, of course, where we're talking. Freddie Freeman was one of the names. You're not pushing him up around because he's already going on the first. But we generally just talked about players that I think are going to be undervalued. The market's being set right now. And I know a lot of people are not drafting. Most people are not drafting right now. That's the same thing to do is take a few months off, reset, start your process somewhere in the winter months, and then you know, you're ready for 2024. But this is also a time when there's a lot of market inefficiencies. People are drafting pretty much solely based off of gut and instinct. Now that we have some projection systems out, people will use those. But there's also a lot of players that are being drafted in weird spots that will settle down a little bit. But this is a good time to draft at least one or two teams just so you can kind of take advantage of some of those inefficiencies. We're going to talk about a few more of them today. There are seven players that we have here on the fade side. It doesn't mean that I hate these players, not even a little bit, because sometimes that is the what people take away from these shows is, oh, Joe doesn't like player A, Joe doesn't like player B. I don't like the price. The pr- I can be in on pretty much any player at the price, but these particular prices right now are a little bit too much for me. So let's start off with the first one, which will be the most controversial one that I'm going to talk about here today. It's Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole, I think, should not be a first-round draft pick, but yet that's pretty much where he's going all the time. His ADP is 12.7. The minimum pick on that scale is 8, and the highest he has gone in any draft was 17. Just barely slipping outside of the first round in a couple of drafts. Now, we had, I think, 28 drafts as of yesterday, We have 31 as of today. There have been a few more completed. Those are slow drafts, most likely. Now, maybe one or two of them was a a one-minute pick clock that happened last night. But we're getting more data come in every single day because people are completing their slow drafts. And you do not get the data posted on these sites until the draft is fully complete. But anyway, Garrett Cole, in the first round, it feels a little bit too expensive to me. Now, Garrett Cole is coming off of a Cy Young. People are going to, and arguably... Eh, maybe not the best season of his career, but one of the best seasons of his career result-wise. 263 ERA was the third lowest that we've ever seen from Garrett Cole. One of those seasons was in Pittsburgh where he had 2.60, and then, of course, in 2019, he had a 2.50 ERA. This year was 2.63, right in line with some of his best years. When you start to go under the hood a little bit with Garrett Cole, though, it's not that great, and it's not to say that it's going to be terrible. I, I still think Garrett Cole is going to be a very valuable pitcher in 2024. But I also don't think that he should be taken in the first round. I think that's where you kind of lose the value on a guy like Garrett Cole. So let's talk about a few different things. His strikeout rate, and we have mentioned this 
there are a few players we're going to talk about today and we talked about yesterday that we may have mentioned in one of our positional reviews. So bear with me if we do recover a couple topics. I have mentioned this point with Garrett Cole. I forget which show it was on now. When you do a show every single day, it's easy to lose track. But we have talked about the fact that his strikeout rate was the lowest we had seen since his Pittsburgh days this past season at 27%. Now, 27% is still well above league average. But when you're coming from a place of 34, 39, 32, 33, 32, the drop down to 27, combined with the fact that he is 33 years old now, which I know is not terribly old, but as you start to get older, there's a lot of mileage under his arm. He has had a pretty charmed existence in the big leagues of avoiding injuries. For the most part, you're seeing 30-plus starts a year. Nearly every season of his career, there are a couple of exceptions. Mostly coming back. I mean, I can't even say mostly. It was 2016, he missed about 10 starts. That was kind of it. 2014, he missed about 10 starts as well. But we're talking a long time ago. Pretty much every season, Garrett Cole is giving you 200 or so innings. He's had nearly 2,000 innings, and he's had 300 starts in his career. So there's maybe a little bit of mileage. There is a little bit of mileage on that arm that could be contributing to the strikeout rate generally going down. The velocity was down a tick as well this year. Not something that's super concerning, but his fastball generally is upper 97-plus. This year was 96.7, which is still within the range of where he has been in his career. It's not like a crazy, you know, Shane Bieber-type fall-off in velocity. But the last two seasons, the fastball averaged 97.7 and 97.8, and this year it was 96.7. So something to keep an eye on. I don't think it's a massive deal, but when you factor it into the rest of what we're seeing here, it does lead to me probably not taking him in the first round. Not even probably. There's no way I'm taking Garrett Cole in the first round. Now let's dig into the ERA estimators. 263 was his actual ERA, like we said. It was it was incredible. Like like we said, he won the American League Cy Young, which somehow was his first Cy Young award. Sometimes you see those weird ones happen. Nolan Ryan never won a Cy Young. Garrett Cole, it took him probably longer than it should have, but he got it at 263 ERA. It was a great season, but it was also kind of a lucky season for him a little bit as well. 348 on the XERA, 360 on the XFIP, and the Sierra was 363. So he got probably bailed out of about a full run on his ERA, which is a pretty large number. You're not talking about, you know, it was a 2.63 ERA and then a, a 3 uh, XERA or Sierra or whatever. It's not like it was within a .2 or a .3. It was about a full run worth of difference there. The early projections are seeming to factor that in as well. If you look at Steamer, Steamer's projecting a 3.72 ERA from Garrett Cole next year. That's not amazing. It's not terrible, but it's outside. Like, Let me just sort by uh, starting pitchers here. I had all pitchers. If you're just sorting by starting pitchers, Garrett Cole is predicted or projected to have the 25th best ERA in Major League Baseball. So I don't really understand taking him in the first round. You're getting somebody that you generally know is going to give you close to 200 innings. But I don't know what we can expect from those innings exactly. Is he going to be able to still give you sub-3 ERA or even something in like the 3.2, 3.3 kind of range that you would need out of a first-round pick? I don't know that he is going to be able to maintain that level. The Yankees are kind of in flux as well. The Yankees are not a great team. I don't know what they're going to look like next year. Maybe they add a bunch of pieces, which is something I have kind of expected them to do with a lot of people expecting the Yankees to not sit on their hands and have another bad season like they just had. It was an embarrassing year for them, although it was only about a 500 season. They're still, you know, expected to do a lot more than that. 
I could see them going out and making some moves, but I could also see the Yankees kind of doing what they have done the last few years, maintaining the status quo of trying to bring up younger guys and not really spend a ton on external free agents. They brought in Carlos Rodon. It did not work out so well. We've talked about this a few days ago as well. Sometimes when teams will make a, a big splash in free agency that doesn't work so well, they will be a little bit gun shy the next year. I still believe in Rodon, but they might not spend as much money as they maybe would have if Rodon had been healthy and had a great season. And then you can justify to ownership, look what happens when we spend money. It's not your daddy's Yankees anymore. I hate that I even said that phrase, but it's true. They're not the Yankees that your parents or even maybe you grew up watching. They don't spend as much money. They're not those juggernauts, Bronx, juggernaut Bronx bombers anymore. And I think Garrett Cole maybe could potentially suffer from that just in terms of the wins and the run support element. He hasn't these last couple of years. He still won 15 games this year, 13 last year, 16 the year prior. He has been a staple of consistency in terms of the wins, the win totals that he gets. But I don't know that we can necessarily just pencil him in for another 15 next year just because it's Garrett Cole. The team is not as good. He is diminishing in terms of his own prowess on the mound. And I just don't know that we can necessarily expect him to maintain everything we saw this year. You know, he got the homer per nine down below one for the first time since 2018. It was usually like 1.2, 1.3, 1.5, even as high as 1.7. I know that was the short year, but he has had some home run issues that he seemed to quell this year. Will that maintain? Will that carry over? I'm not really sure. All of this to say that Garrett Cole, there are a lot of question marks I have, especially when taking this guy in the first round. I don't really love taking pitchers in the first couple rounds anyway. I person, and this is a personal thing. I think that I'm better at evaluating pitchers than I am at evaluating position players and batters. And when I can better predict when a pitcher is going to turn it around than when a batter is going to turn it around. Or I can see something. I was a pitcher, so maybe I don't know if that factors into it at all, but I trust myself more in finding late starting pitchers than I do in finding late guys to plug into my lineup. So I'm probably not taking a pitcher in the first couple rounds anyway. If I would, it would be Spencer Strider. Strider is the guy, and we're not going to get into a huge thing with Strider, but projected for the most wins, the best ERA. He's on the best team in baseball. The strikeouts are going to be absurd, pushing 300, or at least in that general vicinity. If you're going to take a pitcher in the first round, it's got to be Spencer Strider. There's a lot more safety and security. I know his ERA was higher this year, but please, for the love of God, do not just look at ERA in your evaluations. If that were the case, then Blake Snell would be going as the number one pitcher and Garrett Cole is the number two pitcher probably. It's just not the way that it works. It's not going to carry over necessarily. And if you look at steamer projections, specifically from last year, they were really, really accurate in predicting regression for some studs. So, I'm looking at their projections as a 3-7 ERA, and I'm thinking eh, he's probably, you know, should be going in about the third round. But he's not going to. He's Garrett Cole. He pitches in New York. He's coming off of a Cy Young. People are going to push him up, and I don't think that they should. So he's the first fade here uh, that we're talking about. His ADP is 12.7. I just think it's egregiously too high, to be honest with you. I understand why people are doing it, but I still think it's honestly egregiously too high. I think that I, I phrased it right the first time. But let's move on and talk about the next bust that I have. And I shouldn't say bust, but fades at their ADPs. And it's going to be Ellie Dela Cruz. And this one hurts because I know that there's a potential that Ellie Dela Cruz comes in as the number two or three player in fantasy. It's, it's absolutely within the range of outcomes that Ellie is able to smash a top five, top ten season, return first round value, and then we don't really care where we were drafting him at that point. His ADP is 21.8. Minimum pick of 15, which is a first-round ADP. I'm not sure if that particular pick happened in a 12 or a 15-team league draft. 
and his maximum is 35. So the latest you're going to get him is about the early third round of a 15-teamer. Now, like I said, if this does pan out for Ellie, if he's able to play a full season, he gets the batting average up a little bit more, then this could look really, really good. But as of right now, you're paying a lot of money for a guy who's probably not going to have a terribly high batting average. You're probably talking in the 250s, 260s at best. You're getting home runs, but you're not getting like a stupid number of home runs. You're probably going to get 20 or so, 25 maybe. The stolen bases are the big wild card. Now, the interesting thing for me is that Steamers projected 28 steals from Ellie in 130 games after he just come off of stealing 35 of them in 98 games. This is some weird numbers thing with the projections. I wouldn't look at that number at all. I think he's probably going to steal 50 bases for you. But I wouldn't be drafting him in the second round just because you think you're going to get a lot of stolen bases from him. And that's not the only reason why. He's a new shiny toy. We all love a new shiny toy in fantasy. He's playing for a great up-and-coming team in arguably the best, most hitter-friendly ballpark in the game. One or two, depending on how you want to look at it. Some people will say Coors. Some people say Great American. I think Great American has a better home run factor. Coors is just a better overall hitting environment, so you're going to have likely a higher batting average there. But the ball flies out of Great American ballpark. Ellie De La Cruz, some people think he's going to go 30-50 or something like that. And if he does, and it's totally possible, then this argument's going to look really stupid. But I just think, again, and I mentioned this yesterday, in your first couple rounds, I'm and this is preference. This is a personal preference. Everybody drafts their own way, but I'm looking for more upside, or excuse me, I'm looking for more floor than I am for upside in those first couple of rounds. I'm not trying to hit the big winner with pick 17 or 20. I'm trying to just have a guy that is going to be stable. And I've talked about some of these names already. You guys know them. Freddie Freeman, the Jose Ramirez's, the Bryce Harper, if he's healthy, Matt Olson, Corey Seager, Austin Riley. These guys are all going in the same general range as Ellie De La Cruz. Now, they're all going above him. But those are the type of consistent players that I am aiming for in the first couple of rounds. Not even, maybe consistent's not the right word, but guys where we know we have a track record and we can pencil in a, a rough estimate of what we think they're going to do, and it's probably not going to be too far off. Are you talking the guys who are going right after him? It's Austin Riley, it's Francisco Lindor, it's Ozzy Albies, Rafael Devers, Luis Robert, Marcus Semien. There's a lot of security in those picks that you don't have to be sweating about taking Ellie in the second round and thinking, well, maybe it's 50 steals, maybe it's 30, maybe it's 30 homers, maybe it's 20, maybe he hits 210, maybe it's 250. There's a lot of variance that is potentially going to happen with Ellie. We saw him run incredibly hot when he first came up. And I put out a poll in his first or second day. I think it was his second day. And I said, where are you taking Ellie in drafts next year? And most people were saying about this range in the second round. But it fell off precipitously. He moved down the lineup. He strikes out a hell of a lot. I don't think we have a guarantee that he's going to be top of the order every game kind of player, like leading off or batting second every game. They moved him down the order this year. If he's still struggling, they'll do it again. Now, I don't think it's incredibly likely, but it's definitely possible that Ellie, if he really struggles, doesn't even stay on the big league roster. There's a good chance that if he starts this season in 2024, the way he ended 2023, and I think it would take probably a good chunk of games for them to do this, but I think there's a chance that he gets sent down if he's not coming out of the gate hot. We saw him really, really struggle. We saw him put up in his rookie year a strikeout rate that is terrible. 33.7% is incredibly high. It's higher than we saw from him ever put up in the minors, which is to be expected. But in AAA, we were seeing 27% strikeout rate, 14% walk rate. His first go at the bigs, you're looking at an 8% walk rate, which is still very good, but a 33, almost 34% strikeout rate is almost unplayable at that point for a real-life team. 
I'm not talking about your fantasy teams. If Ellie is there on the big league roster, he's getting at bats. He's obviously a must-start player. But I think there's a lot of risk in the second round. When you could take a Francisco Lindor, you could take an Austin Riley, a Marcus Semien, and these are guys where we know every single year what they're going to do. There's a little bit more variance with Lindor, but like with Marcus Semien, just directly compare one-to-one, or even Riley. Why would you take Ellie De La Cruz ahead of those guys? Because you maybe could hit the big, the big jackpot, which... Again, like we talked about, maybe it's 20 homers and 50 steals with a 250 batting average. Is that going to be better than what you get out of Riley, which is like 40 homers, 200 runs in RBI, and close to 300 batting average? I guess it's, again, up to the user, up to the person who is making these draft picks, which is you. But me personally, I don't want to take that risk in the second round. There was a time when I definitely thought that I would have. And if he had finished the year the way he started it and it was just gangbusters the whole year he finished with 20 homers 40 steals batted 270 or something then we're thinking jesus christ he's probably a first rounder but at this point i just think that you kind of have to push ellie de la cruz down the board at least a little bit now let's talk about another guy that i'm also unfortunately pushing down the boards a little bit and that's gunner henderson nothing against gunner henderson which is you know kind of the main point here today nothing against any of these guys but gunner henderson is being drafted at the end of the second round that's a little bit too much for me. Again, we're talking 15-team um, ADP here for a lot of it. Most of these drafts that are happening are 15-teamers. Some of them are 12s. But for the most part, you're looking at Gunnar Henderson going middle to end of the second round, and I think we can get there in a couple of years, but I think we're probably pushing him up a little bit too high this season. So I talked about dollar values yesterday a little bit. Gunnar Henderson was an 18.9, call him a $19 player last season, which was good enough for 55th on the Razzball Player Raider if you're talking 12-team leagues. I don't understand why we are now taking him in the second round. It just seems like we're kind of pushing him up a little bit too much here after what we saw this year, which was not a hell of a lot of stolen bases. The batting average, which is, you know, it ended up at 255, and he did get better down the stretch. Uh, second half was 264, first half was 246. But again, in the second round, there's not a lot of safety with that pick. You kind of need him to at least maintain what he did here as a rookie, and then some for him to meet second round value. 28 homers, 100 runs, 82 RBI. It's really good, but it's probably realistically should be in the third or fourth round. To take him in the second round and to pass up some of the guys that are going around him, again, that's mainly my argument here with these guys is that you can get better value down below or even in the same range. Semyon's going within one and a half picks of Gunnar Henderson. Pete Alonso going at the same range. Vlad Guerrero, Bo Bichette, Jose Altuve, Michael Harris, Adelise Garcia. There's a lot of guys that I feel a lot more comfortable in with Gunnar Henderson. I feel like he's potentially a three-category guy with some help in, ba- in uh, stolen bases. But I don't think it's a massive category boost for him. I also think that as a whole, the Orioles were pretty lucky this past season. Offensively, they're a very good unit. Are they a 100-win team now every year, or did they just kind of run into one of those really lucky good seasons? I don't know. But I think this is probably more similar to what we saw the Diamondbacks do this year, what we saw the Giants do a couple of years ago, where they, you know, what was it, 107 wins out of nowhere. They're differently constructed teams. Absolutely not trying to compare them in that respect. But in terms of the overshooting your numbers kind of ordeal. I think that the Baltimore Orioles got pretty lucky this season. I don't think that they're going to be as good offensively going forward. We got some random Ryan O'Hearn and Aaron Hicks production that I don't think is going to be able to replicate year after year. Gunner 
is probably going to be very good, but he's probably not going to meet up to what we're drafting him at. Now, his projections, they're pretty much expecting the same thing from last year except a slight bit of regression. And now what we saw last year was a 55th ranked player. If we're expecting some regression according to the projections, then why are we taking him in the second round? Projected to go down to 26 homers from 28, which is not a big deal. But he's projected to lose 11 runs and 7 RBI. That's not... No, it's not a huge deal. It's really not over the course of a whole season, especially in a head-to-head league. But it's just going to diminish that value. So you're probably taking the 55th ranked player. You add in this regression that we're expecting based on the projections. And you're talking in the 70s, maybe? Like, he's probably, he's a top 100 player. No question in my mind that Gunnar Henderson's a top 100 player. But he's not a top 30 player. He's certainly not a top 25 player. At that point, I think we're just kind of wish casting and saying, well... You know, this is what he did as a rookie. So next year, we're going to have to bump up the 28 homers to 35. You know, the 82 RBI is going to be 100. Next year, he'll steal 20 bases. And people start talking themselves into this a lot of the time with second or third year players that it's just going to keep getting better and better and better every season. There's a chance that this is a plateau year for Gunnar Henderson. 100 runs is about as much as you can hope for. With a young team in a big ballpark now that they've I hate that I hate the changes. I know it's been a while since they've made it, but I hate the changes to Baltimore. It's a more pitcher-friendly park. It's not going to do them any favors as an offense. He's not somebody that is that kind of five-category juggernaut or at least four-category juggernaut that I'm looking for in those first couple of rounds. If he falls, then I'd probably take him somewhere in the fourth, and his maximum pick of 51 is probably about where I would start to think about it. But at the lower end of that spectrum... 23, 25, 29, there are better players available. You can go pitching. You can go Castillo. You can go Wheeler. You can go Gosman like we talked about yesterday. You can go with another bat. There are so many options in that range. I just don't see the need to take a chance on a young guy who does have a bit of a flawed game. I don't think that he is going to necessarily just take a huge step forward. He could. He could. But I don't think based on the team around him, based on the ballpark, based on a tough division with good pitchers, that he is necessarily going to take a huge jump forward to justify a second-round ADP. Let's talk C.J. Abrams. Now, we talked about him a couple times now because we have done the shortstop review. We did the second-base review. Now, he didn't play at second base this past season, but he was eligible there on Yahoo, so we did mention him in our second-base review as well. He had 18 homers, 47 stolen bases, and a 245 batting average. Really nice strikeout percentage of 19. But we're now taking him in the third round of drafts. Oh, man, that's what I hate. That's what I hate when there's a young guy who could have – and the same kind of thing with, with Gunnar Henderson, but I think it's even worse with, um, with C.J. Abrams. You have a young guy who has a good stretch or a good season – and then you just push him up way too high. It doesn't even have to be a young guy. We just look at a good stretch, and the guy goes way too high. His teammate last year, Joey Manessis, was an example of this. He was a top 100 pick in a lot of cases, and it was really stupid at the time. It looks even stupider now, but this is what happens, right? People will push you way, way, way up the board, unnecessarily so because they'll see something in the second half over a small sample size that makes you fall in love with the player. And if you picked up C.J. Abrams down the stretch and you got those 35 steals down the, in the second half of the season, there's a good chance that he helped you win a Roto League or even your head-to-head league. But now being taken with a minimum pick of 31, so that's the second pick of round three, uh, actually the first pick of round three, sorry, and you're talking about a maximum pick of 68. 68 is probably more acceptable 
But again, we're talking about a guy who was not that great last year. We're not talking about a five-category asset. We're talking about a guy who is probably, honestly, like a one-category guy with stolen bases. 18 homers in 151 games. It's fine. It's it's nothing crazy one way or the other. 83 runs. Eh, it's not a great team. I don't think that's going to jump up terribly much. 64 RBI is not great. I mean, from a shortstop, it's all right, but it's nothing to write home about. And then a 245 batting average. I don't know that we're going to necessarily see the batting average jump up a lot either. In the minor leagues, he was not a guy who hit for a terribly high batting average a lot of the time. It was not bad. You're talking like 290, 310 kind of range in the minors, which is really good, but you've got to regress that 20, 30, sometimes even more, 40, 50 points in the majors, and that's what we've seen. 246 in his first cup of coffee, 245 this past season. Projections seem to think he'll go up to 260, but even at 260, with the stolen bases predict, uh, predicted, projected, I keep mixing those two words up in my head, essentially talking the same thing, but you're talking about a 37 steal projection instead of 47. The homers, steal, or the homers, runs, and RBIs are expected to stay about the same, but we're regressing those steals by 10. And again, this, the, uh, the projections are not always gospel. They're not always perfect, but they're what we have to go on for right now. You know, C.J. Abrams finished in that exact same range as Gunnar Henderson last year, $18.9 player which is really good. It's the 54th-ranked player, tied for Gunnar Henderson, exactly tied. But now we're drafting him at least a full round ahead of that with projected regression coming in on, on a bad team, right? Like, that's another big factor here is that the team around him is not going to be great. I think Lane Thomas is real good. Bear Ruiz is real good. The young guys, you know, Wood and a couple of guys are going to probably come up this year, but I don't know that we can necessarily say like, Oh, they got a lot of young talent. This is the year for him. Like as a dynasty asset, I like him a lot more than as a redraft asset, especially going to the third round here. I just don't see there being enough juice amongst all the categories to make him really worth it. He'd have to steal 75 bases for him to really be worth it in this range. And can he do it? No, probably not. I mean, it's maybe possible he has the speed to steal 50, 60, maybe, but he's not going to do that. That's just not the way that this generally works. Most of the guys who stole massive numbers last year, Corbin and Bobby Witt and Acuna, they're going to come down a little bit. I think the league will generally adjust to these guys who are stealing tons of bases, and we won't see it to the same extent this year. So those guys that are essentially one-category stolen base guys, the C.J. Abrams, to, you know, to a lesser extent than some of the other guys we're going to mention, but Estrella Ruiz, Estrella Ruiz is going in the top 100 picks sometimes because he's stealing bases. Will it be the same number as last year? I don't know, but to push these one category guys up doesn't make a lot of sense to me. To push them up into the third round, I just can't do it. Like if he's going in the fourth, I could maybe get behind it, maybe. But even then, I I don't want to take a chance on a guy who's playing for a bad team. He's got a questionable overall fantasy game to begin with and a guy that you are almost needing to have a huge huge bump next season for him to be worth the price if he just does exactly what he did this year he's not going to be worth the price and we have to look at the how we're balancing the first half versus the second half because it is a kind of a random sampling right like these a lot of these guys who are better in the second half and I'm guilty of it too even like the Tariq Skubles and the Nick Pavetta's you got to look, and Scoobles is a different example because he was hurt, but we have to look at the first half as well. We can't just look at the most recent sample size as much as we want to and say this is going to carry over because there's a lot more that goes into it than just the three-month sample size like we're looking at with C.J. Abrams, which is why he's being pushed up to this degree. He was being dropped in a lot of leagues up to the All-Star break, around the All-Star break, and then, of course, 
he won a lot of people leagues because they picked him up or whatever. And that's why people are pushing him up draft boards because of that second half spurt. And it was pretty much all stolen bases. It was not power. It was not batting average. It's just speed. And I think that speed is kind of findable later on. Not that you're going to find 50, 60 stolen base guys later on, but you'll find your 15s and your 20s here and there. And you can kind of make up for not having to take a guy like C.J. Abrams in the third round. I think it's just the price has gotten way too much for me. But let's talk about somebody else. And I've mentioned this guy before. His price is absolutely absurd. It has come down a little bit, though, which is really, really good to see. The people are starting to adjust that the early trends are not necessarily going to stick to to 100%, right? You're going to see a lot of these guys stick to the rough position where they're going now. But we've already seen Royce Lewis drop about 20 picks in ADP just based on about the last 10 or 15 drafts. People were being shamed publicly, and I was one of the people doing it, saying, what the hell are we doing taking Royce Lewis 22nd or 21st or 23rd overall? Now he's going at 42. Definitely makes it a little bit more palatable. Minimum pick of 15, maximum of 110. So there is a bit of a range here with Royce Lewis. If you're getting him at 110, I would, I would take the plunge, right? I don't think that's going to be commonplace getting him at that price. But if you are able to get him outside of the top 100 picks, that's where you start taking shots on upside. This is what we talked about yesterday. If you're taking shots on upside in round two or round three, odds are you're going to probably be disappointed. Every now and then you hit on a Corbin Carroll type or you know, Julio and Bobby Witt the year before weren't going as high up, so it's a different example. But like Corbin Carroll by the end of drafts last season was being pushed into about the third round. It was a risk. It paid off. Are people going to just do that every year now because there have been a few examples of that paying off recently? I think they'd be really foolish to do so. Royce Lewis on a per-at-bat basis is brilliant. He's an excellent, excellent baseball player. But you're talking about a guy that's played 70 big league games, 58 of them this year, and he flourished, right? And even in the playoffs, he he pretty much single-handedly knocked off my Blue Jays. But you're talking about 58 games. And now you're taking him sometimes in the second, third round. Like If you're talking, like I said, pass pick 100, you want to take shots on upside, absolutely do it. You're not getting him there most of the time. Maybe the price adjusts a little bit more and he comes down into the 50s or so because there's a legitimate injury risk here with Royce Lewis. Like I talk a lot of the time, especially about pitchers, that they're all kind of injury risks. There's nobody that is a pitcher that's not an injury risk. I'm sorry. Like It's just the way that's the nature of what you're doing on the mound, the way you're flinging your arm. Pitching is an incredibly unnatural motion on the body. You're not supposed to do it. The arm was not designed to do it. People are going to get hurt a lot more doing that. Position players, I don't feel the same level of everybody's injury prone, everybody's an injury risk. Everybody is to some extent, but Royce Lewis has dealt with, just look up his injuries. I'm not going to go through all of them here, but just go ahead and look up Royce Lewis's injury history and tell me if you want to take him in the second round. I personally don't. Now, his ADP now is more in the third round range, which maybe is a little more acceptable to some people, but it's still fit in the same argument that I've talked about, that you don't need to shoot for this crazy high upside early on in your draft. Wait a little bit. If you miss out on these guys, then take the boring guys. All of the smartest fantasy players in the world, and I'm definitely not counting myself among their ranks, but the smartest people in the world will tell you the way you win big leagues and big contests is by taking the boring guys. Dave Potts, who works with Roto Grinders, he is one of their more well-known people. He is a DFS expert. He has, and I say that not lightly, he's won the Millie Maker twice from baseball. I don't believe anybody else has ever won a million dollars two different times playing DFS. Dave Potts and season-long tournaments as well. Like he is one, he's a Hall of Fame fantasy baseball player. He will tell you, and he told us in Arizona, because he was on a panel or two, 
that the way he wins a lot of these leagues is by avoiding these kind of players. They are traps. You go and you take the guy that's being pushed down several rounds. This year, it'll probably be you'll see a lot of Goldschmidt and Arenado and Machado and those older types that no one really cares about anymore, and they're being pushed down in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. Let other people take these shots on upside. You need to take the shot. Not that you need to, but this is my advice. Do you take the shot on the floor players at those early, early, early rounds, one through four, one through five? Don't be shooting for the moon. Shoot for the floor. And I think that that's something that people are not really doing so far, and you can kind of take advantage if you're drafting early. Some people are going to take Ellie in the second, Royce Lewis in the third, Nolan Jones in the fourth, and, well, maybe it pans out for them. Odds are it probably doesn't. Go for a little bit more safety. I think that would be really, really wise. And it's the same argument with the next guy we're going to talk about. It's Jazz Chisholm. Jazz Chisholm's going in the 50s. It's like we haven't learned a damn thing from Jazz Chisholm and his injury history, which is literally just every year he plays like 40 games, 50 games, 70 games, whatever it is. He's never given you a full season, and yet we're drafting him, expecting it in the 40s, in the 50s. What are we doing with Jazz Chisholm at this point, right? Now, he's only 25 years old. He'll be 26 before next season starts. But we're talking about a guy who has played over 100 games once in his four seasons. Can't really count the rookie year, I guess. Let's just look at the last three years. 124 games, 60 games, and 97 games. You're looking at about no security, like nothing at all. You're also talking about a strikeout rate that's gone up, a walk rate that has gone down, an overall kind of unimpressive batting average and supporting cast around him, and you're hoping for a 30-30-40-40 season from Jazz, hoping he's healthy. That won't get you that price. Obviously, a 40-40 season would return well above expected value there uh, at that draft pick, but I think you get what I'm saying. He would need to be incredible in and of himself and healthy for him to really support this kind of draft price. It's not in the cards for me at this point or ever to take Jazz Chisholm in the fourth round. There is just no way that I'm ever clicking the draft price on him at 56 over the guys who are going even around later. I'd much rather take Matt McClain around later or even Mike Trout Nico Horner, literally anybody who is going after him or even before him, right? His minimum pick is 27. That's the end of the second round. His maximum pick is 95. And at 95, yeah, you get a little more interested, right? Like I said, closer closer to pick 100 after pick 100. You want to take a shot on upside. That's totally fine. But to reach and take Jazz Chisholm in the second or third or fourth round is literally the Michael Scott beam of being ready to get hurt again because he's going to hurt you again. Maybe he spikes a healthy season. Maybe he's able to give you a Luis Robert-type year this year where he is healthy, he returns for the most part of the season, like first, second, third round value. It's totally possible. And one of these years, he's going to spike a healthy season. But I'm not paying the premium for it. You're still paying a premium for Jazz, and it's because the per-game production is still really good. But realistically speaking, he's not playing these 138 games that Steamer's projecting him for. If he does, then he's probably worth the draft pick. But I just don't have any faith that he is going to. You might as well take Byron Buxton in the you know fourth or fifth round at that point because, well, if he's healthy, he'll return the value. Or Eloy Jimenez, you know, it's the same kind of argument. If they're healthy, well, they're never healthy. They're never healthy. So why would I take a chance on a guy whose price is not even really diminished at all from last year? I'm not looking at last year's ADP data, but I think Jazz was going in the 40s. Why on earth would I take him at this range? Like if he's going in the 90s or, you know, he's dropped down precipitously like we've seen with some guys like a Buxton. You know, a Buck, this is probably, as a side note, if you're going to buy in on Buxton, this is probably your time to do it. Or a guy like a Carlos Correa. Not that I really like either of them, but Byron Buxton, as of right now, is going, where is he going? 247. I mean, at that point, sure. Why the hell not? 
But at pick 55, when you're not getting any kind of discount on a guy that is just constantly hurt, I can't do it to myself. I, I can't take Jazz Chisholm, and I hope that nobody else does either in the fourth round because that price is absolutely ridiculous for a guy who plays for a bad team. I don't want to hear about how they were 84 instead of whatever they were. They got really lucky this season. They're not a team with a strong supporting cast. They're going to lose Solaire probably. That's just going to suck away some of that power and you know actual talent from that lineup, not to diminish the other guys. They're major league players, but they're not a great offense. I don't think Jazz Chisholm is going to come even close to justifying this ADP unless he plays 130, 140 games, which is probably not in the cards for him. But let's finish off. Let's talk about one more guy, and we'll bookend it with the Cy Young winners because this one, and it's going to make some people not happy probably, is Blake Snell. Blake Snell is one of my fades for next season, coming in at an ADP of 65. I just think it's a little bit too rich for me. I think that Blake Snell is a really good pitcher. Blake Snell... There's no reason to doubt that he can be a good major league pitcher. And hell, he's won two Cy Young Awards now. Who am I to say he's not? I'm not saying that he's not, but I'm saying that he's a super, super lucky pitcher to have won the Cy Young, let alone to have won two Cy Youngs. Now, his first one, he earned it. 189 ERA over the whole season. The indicators were were higher, but they're still very, very good. Now, this year, 225 ERA. Now, he overshot his pitching estimators by about a run and a half on average. His Sierra was over four. Sierra is generally looked at as probably the most accurate of all those numbers that we talk about, the XFIPs, the FIPs, Sierra, all those ones. Sierra is generally considered to be the one that is the most accurate in predicting performance. Blake Snell this season ranked 23rd in his Sierra. It's not terrible right he was 13th in xfip in terms of his fip he was 13th as well so he was kind of just okay like he was fine he wasn't anything really honestly to write home about he got very very lucky and i know people are probably people have already shut it off probably listening to this but he walked 99 batters he had the most walks in baseball by i believe it was 16 walks he stranded 86% of base runners, and he allowed only a 256 BABIP. It was an incredibly lucky season that never really should have happened. 13.3% walk rate is terrible. It is awful, and he was able to somehow work through it. Will he be lucky again next year and be able to replicate the same thing? Probably not. I, I don't know. I feel like somebody's going to really overpay for him in free agency, and it's going to be the Robbie Ray effect. You find somebody who had an amazing season, and hell, they both won the Cy Young. They're both lefties, but that's just a coincidence here. I mean, they both have a similar kind of profile, high strikeout, high walk. They win the Cy Young, and then they're being drafted way too high. And it's not a crazy, crazy high price like I thought it would be for Blake Snell. It's 65. 65 is his ADP, but it still feels too high for somebody that is projected to regress. If you look at what Steamer has for him for next year, the 365 ERA, they think the strikeouts will go down. They also think the walks will go down, but that's kind of besides the point. You're drafting somebody in round four who's projected to have a 365. It's not bad. It's not bad, and he's not as hard of a fade as these other ones, but I do think that there are better names going around Blake Snell that you don't have to pay up for, not even just around him, but well below him. I mean, Grayson Rodriguez is going about seven or eight picks later, Logan Webb as well. Uh, Kodai Senga, there's Paul Seawald on the relief side. 
There's Yoshinobu Yamamoto, who's going to be posted, I believe, this weekend or on Monday, and he's definitely somebody that could be a Cy Young candidate himself. There's Jesus Lazardo. There's Bobby Miller. There's Zach Eflin. There's Kyle Bradish. Justin Steele, Joe Ryan. These are a lot of names that are all going after Blake Snell that I like at least as much. I'm not going to say before I have everything finalized in terms of rankings and projections that I actually like player A more than player B for the most part. There are some that are obvious. I don't know if I'm going to like Joe Ryan more than Blake Snell, but I think I probably will uh, based on what we saw last year, based on my own analysis already. And Joe Ryan's going about 50 picks later. So it's not so much that I hate Blake Snell or any of these guys we talked about today. It's that I hate their price. If the price is right, then the price is right. But I just don't think of these seven names that we talked about that I'm really going to be able to invest where they are currently going. The market will adjust to some extent, but this is kind of what it's going to look like, I think, at this point. I, I know there's a long way to go, and it'll be different based on if you're playing Yahoo or ESPN or Fantrax or whatever. This is kind of just setting it for the NFBC world, but that does, in turn, kind of set it for everybody. It's not going to be drastically different in terms of Anything except for catchers. Catchers in your one catcher formats will be going lower than they will on the NFBC, which is why I try and stay away from catchers in general with these videos, values, or fades, because they are really so format dependent. Two catchers versus one catcher changes the entire equation. It's like super flex for football. If you guys play fantasy football, if you add a second quarterback into that equation, then quarterbacks start to go incredibly high up in drafts. It's the same kind of ordeal. So we don't really talk about catchers. They're kind of a whole different animal here. But the market is setting itself. The market is setting itself. This is why we're doing these shows, so that if you guys are drafting early, or maybe you're not even going to be drafting for four months, you can start to at least figure out who I like, who I don't like. Whether or not you care is a whole, whole other topic. You guys can reach out, of course, on Twitter. If you got any questions, over at JoeOrico99. Also at EthosFantasyBB, and of course, SportsEthos.com. I always neglect to do this at the beginning of the episode, but if you guys could leave a rating and review on the pod, it would really help as well. Helps us to be seen by more people, helps the show grow, and all that great algorithm stuff that is too complicated for my brain to wrap around, especially as we enter into the weekend here late on a Friday. But that'll do it for me, guys. Of course, social media, reach out if you got any questions. Next week, we are going to pick up with first base reviews. First base will take up Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and we'll see what happens throughout the week. If there's any signings, trades, we'll figure out things to talk about uh, throughout the rest of the week. But until then, guys, take care, have a great night, and cheers. We'll see you on Monday.